0: Morning, Penn Valley family. It is awesome to be with you this morning on this beautiful, cool, crisp autumn morning. I love this time of year. And uh, we are gonna be continuing this morning in our series on holiness. And uh, this is our fifth sermon in the series this morning, so hopefully you've been able to be here for the other four or catch up online. If not, I wanna encourage you to do so. Uh, and we're gonna start doing by doing a little something different than what we normally do. So if you have your bulletin, or if you have a little notepad, I want you to take it out, and here's what I wanna do. I wanna take 60 seconds, maybe 90 seconds. Uh, and I'm gonna ask you to, to do two things for me. I'm gonna ask you first to write down a definition of holiness. If you were gonna define it, how would you do so so take a little bit of time to do that and then i'm going to give you the second one that i'm going to ask you to do and then we'll actually get started with the sermon all right so take 60 seconds you're on the clock So you didn't know it was going to be like coming to school today, did you? Where you had an assignment and you have to, there's no quiz though, so you're okay. And then secondly, once you've done that, now here's what I want you to do. Now I want you to write down what it means to live a holy life. Just write a sentence or two. If you were going to explain it to somebody, what would you say? All right, so here's why I asked you to do those two things for me. One, obviously, we've been in a series on holiness. But secondly, holiness is one of those words that if you've grown up around the church or been around the church for a while, we hear quite frequently. Yet if somebody asked you to define it and asked you, what, what does it mean to live a holy life? Would you be able to do it? Depending on your age, you might have grown up hearing that holiness is, is sort of like a list of things we don't do, right? If you're old enough, you'll know the, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls who do. Right? That was, that was a thing. Or maybe you're not quite that old, you're a little bit younger, but you know holiness as a list of activities that you're supposed to do. You're supposed to read the Bible. You're supposed to pray. You're supposed to fast. You're supposed to share your faith. And obviously all those things are good things, right? But if we only view holiness through that lens, I fear we're missing the beauty of holiness. And that's kind of what I wanna go after a little bit this morning, is seeing that there's more to it than just a to-do list, right? Because to-do lists are, are a little bit easier, aren't they? We like having that. I can check off, oh, read my Bible today, put a little gold star there, prayed today, another gold star, right? But I think God's asking for, or looking for a little something more than just that, a greater commitment out of us than simply being able to cross off the things on our holy to-do list. So, over the last four weeks, Pastor Adam has gone over uh, four messages, and I just kind of tried to summarize them a little bit in some pithy little statements to help us remember, because it's helpful going forward. So, number one, and these were really what the first three messages were about. Holiness starts with God. He is God, we are not. Secondly, as we begin to let that sink in a little bit, we realize that holiness requires us to have an honest look at our sin. And that's really hard, isn't it? Looking at our sin is sort of like as we get older looking in the mirror, right? When we're young, you know, we're we're spending time in front of the mirror, we wanna look good, we want our clothes to be just right, our hair to just be right, right? As we get older, we're looking and there's less hair to look at, right? There's bags under the eye, you're looking tired, right? You don't wanna spend as much time in front of the mirror, as you get older, as when you were young. And sin is is sort of like that, right? We don't wanna look and see what that really looks like in our life because it's not pretty. And yet, if we wanna pursue holiness, the only way to do so is to take an honest look at our sin. So think about it this way. Um, if, If you have an issue in your life of Continued sin, that's not as only as impacting you, it's impacting your family, it's impacting your relationship with others, it's impacting, obviously, your relationship with God. So if we aren't willing to address that in our lives, then we're going to be missing an awful lot in our Christian walk. So this morning we're going to take a look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and just a little bit of background so we understand kind of where Peter is coming from. Peter is writing this book in the early to mid 60s AD, not 1960s obviously, and he's writing to a group of churches that are located in what is modern-day Turkey. He, however, if you can, I don't know how well you can see that, but Up in the upper left-hand corner of the map is Rome. And that's where we believe he was at the time he was writing this book, this letter to these churches. And these may have been churches that Peter himself did not have a direct contact with, much like Paul when he wrote to the Roman church. He hadn't been there yet. But he knew there was a church there. He knew what was going on and he wanted to encourage and affirm and challenge them in their faith, and that's what Peter is doing here. Now, when we think of Peter, traditionally we think of Peter as the one who wrote primarily to a Jewish audience, a Jewish audience that had believed on Christ. But it would appear in 1 Peter, particularly from the fourth chapter and some things he shares there, that he's not writing primarily to a Jewish audience, but to a Gentile audience. And that's what makes what he says a little bit unique. We'll come back to that last part on there, the uh, Old Testament references in a minute. But listen to what he says at the very beginning of his letter, because this is important as we look at the passage today. First Peter one and two, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, if you're a Jewish Christian in the first century, hearing the word exile resonates with you because that's the very history of Israel itself. But for a Gentile believer, exile is not really a word they probably would have thought about very much. So what's going on here? Why is Peter writing to them and referring to them as exiles? Well, the term that's translated exiles, or stranger perhaps in your version of the Bible that you have, is actually a word that means a foreign resident or temporary resident so it's somebody who's living somewhere they're not from except in this case these believers are probably from predominantly that area so they're not living they haven't moved from another area to here they're from this very area but peter is referring to them as exiles because this isn't their home and this isn't our home. And that's important as we deal with the topic of holiness because we need to keep that truth in mind in order to live a holy life. So Peter, I think, is doing at least two things here. One, he's saying the Gentiles are part of God's family, right? We see that in other parts of scripture as well. Jesus says he has another flock that he needs to reach out to. Paul says, you know, at one time you weren't part of God's plan now, or God's family, now you are, you've been grafted in. So Peter's affirming that, but he's also saying God's family lives in a foreign land, even if it's the place you grew up. So most of you here have probably always lived or pretty much always lived in this area of Pennsylvania. I know some of you are from outside of this area, but most of you probably grew up here. Guess what? You're still in exile. You're still living In a foreign land because your residence if you believe on christ isn't telford it's not quaker town it's not pensburg it's not Southerton, it's not franconia it's not harleysville it's heaven and that's a key idea that we need to keep in mind in order to understand what it is that peter is saying so to pursue holiness we have to have a proper view of god as pastor adam talked about the first three weeks We have to have a proper view of sin, as he talked about last week. And thirdly, I want to say we have to have a proper view of our citizenship. We have to understand where our citizenship lies. Now, Peter's not saying because you're not a citizen of this world, of this location, that you should just check out. That's not what he's saying because the rest of 1 Peter wouldn't make sense if that were the case. What he's saying is that as an exile, we're called to live a unique and distinctive life among the people group where we live. And he says, you're not only an exile, you're an elect exile. And notice what he does. He ties this to all three members of the Trinity. He talks about... According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, God knew you were going to be in this place at this time. He's put you here in the sanctification of the Spirit. He's the one who's making you more like Jesus for obedience to Jesus Christ. So all three members of the Trinity have an involvement in us being elect exiles. Oh, you know what? let me go back. Let me just go back to this last part on the Old Testament references. So if you want to understand first Peter, you need to understand that he references the Old Testament quite a bit. You need to understand that he not only quotes it in places, but he also has allusions to it. And just in the first chapter alone, he's referencing Exodus, Leviticus, Isaiah and Jeremiah, and he's going to go on to the Psalms and other places as he writes. But again, to understand what he's getting across, we need to keep that in mind. So now here's what's interesting to me. I mentioned that Peter is writing this letter to a group of churches in Turkey from Rome. So he's a good distance away, writing to a group of people he's probably not met. Rome in the day, of course, was the epicenter of the civil government it was the epicenter of culture, and it was the epicenter of commerce. It would sort of be like if we wrapped together New York City, Washington, D.C., and Los Angeles, right? If something was going to take root, it was probably gonna take root there first and then begin to spread out. And so Peter is seeing firsthand what's happening in Rome, and what's happening is an increasing persecution of the Church of Christ. And he knows that eventually this is going to spread out, including to the group that he is writing to. You see, they're already experiencing difficulties, but those difficulties probably are not yet imprisonment. They're probably not death threats. They're probably not beatings for the most part. Maybe there's some, but it's probably not primarily that. What it is is ridicule, exclusion, and antagonism. Peter though was seen in Rome that it had gone much further and that that was going to be something that would spread to the rest of the Roman Empire. So he's writing this letter both as a warning but also an exhortation. And it sounds like, doesn't it, antagonism and and being made fun of and being put down, it sounds an awful lot like what's begun to happen to the Christian community in the West. And so we have a particular reason to be interested in what Peter has to say here. But it's interesting how Peter's going to go about instructing these believers to respond to what they are experiencing and will be experiencing in the future. So here's what Peter says, he says, listen, I know you're going through hardships. I know that you're facing ridicule and persecution, and it's only gonna intensify. Here's how to respond to it. Now look at what he says. He talks about living an honorable life, being subject to every human institution, living as free people who are serving God, not repaying evil for evil, but being a blessing to those who look down on you being ready to give an answer for the hope that you have in any circumstance and humbling yourself before God. He doesn't say claim your rights. He doesn't say withdraw from where you live. He doesn't say any of those things. He says live in such a unique and distinctive way that it's evident who you follow. He wanted them to be able to show those who had a hatred for them, what Jesus was truly like. So I said earlier, holiness is much more than things we don't do. It's much more than the rules we follow. I just wanna take a quick stab and give you a definition that I hope will be helpful. Holiness is the ordering of our life in a way that shows others the beauty of who God is. Holiness is an ordering of our life in a way that shows others the beauty of who God is. So think about this as an example, right? Some of you have worked on old cars, right? And you've refurbished them. Now, what if you got a car that in its heyday would have been immaculate and beautiful, and now it's all run down? You know, it's got dents in it, the bumper's falling off, right? You could bang the dents out. You could rub the scratches out. You could do all those things, but if you took that out to a classic car show, only having done those things, would you win the prize? No, right? What are you gonna do? You're gonna match up the paint scheme. You're gonna make sure the upholstery on the interior is beautiful. You're gonna make sure that it's all the original parts as best as you can, and it might take time, but that's your goal. And that's God's goal in our life, right? He's restoring us in the image he originally created us in, as he fits us and prepares us to live in a kingdom that we're already citizens of, but haven't fully experienced. So as Peter does this, he's going to give us four exhortations to holiness that we're going to look at briefly, and two evidences of it. He's going to to give us four exhortations, preparing our minds, being sober-minded, setting our hope, and not being conformed. But then he's also going to go on to show us a little bit, and this is just a a brief taste in a sense, because we're only looking at chapter 1, of what holiness produces in our life. It produces a godly fear and it produces a love for one another. So let's take a moment, if you would, you can stay seated, you don't have to stand, but read together with me this passage, because this is kind of the nuts and bolts today of what we'll be looking at. So 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16, read along with me. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would uh, quicken the word to our hearts this morning. We pray that we would see things perhaps we haven't seen before or be encouraged with things we have and that you would establish holiness in our life. God, help us to see practically what it looks like as a follower of Jesus Christ, whose citizenship resides elsewhere, what that looks like to live it out in our day and in our place among the people you have called us to, we pray. In the precious and holy name of Jesus, amen. All right. So there's two things really that we need to pay particular attention to. The first one comes before this passage, and it's seen in verses three through 11, or excuse me, verse three through 12. Peter is going to talk about the fact that we have a living hope, and he's gonna look at it from a future perspective, a present perspective, and a past perspective. He's going to talk about that there's a future inheritance that we have, that there's a present joy we have, and that there's a previous revelation that brought all of this about. So let's look at the passage together, okay? So this is verses 3 through 12. We're just going to quickly go through a couple things on that as we work towards that main part of the passage. So Peter starts off almost with a song of praise or a poem at the very beginning. That's how he's going to talk about this living hope we have. So before he gives any instructions, he's going to praise God, and he's going to say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, Peter, the, the, the very nature of grace had arrested his heart, right? He was a loud loud-mouthed fisherman, right? Who thought he knew everything. He stood up to Jesus at times when he thought Jesus was going in the wrong direction. And even after Jesus is resurrected and the spirit comes and he preaches on Pentecost, we still find at times that Peter's not getting the story straight. He goes off to Cornelius's family, but to get there, God's got to give him a dream. And Peter has to say, I would never eat those things, Lord. And God's like, Really, what I've declared is clean. Who are you to question it? Then we see in Galatians, where Paul is writing and he says, you know, there was a time that Peter showed up and there were others who didn't quite get grace and he was fearful of them. So he stepped back and he lived in legalism. So Peter knows what it's like not to live under grace. But now his heart has been filled with this amazing message of the gospel. And now he knows what it's like to be liberated by it. And so he can't help, before he gets into the rest of the passage, he can't help but start with a song of praise to God. You see, because he knew that he didn't pursue God, God pursued him. He knew that was true for his audience, and it's true for us. You didn't really know God, and you certainly didn't pursue him. He pursued you. The other day, there was a movie on TV that was made about 15 years ago called Taken, and maybe you saw it. It was with Liam Neeson, and he's a former CIA operative. And his daughter just, I think, turned 18 or 19, and she wants to go off into the great big world, and he knows what that world is like because of what he did for work. And he's trying to let her know, listen, there's a lot more going on out there than you think. And she's like, oh, it'll be great. Everything will be fine. This will be so much fun. Right? And she goes off to France. And there's this hectic call made to him. And she says, somebody broke into the house. They're after me. And he says, I'm coming for you. And so the entire movie, right, is him trying to track down where she is. And finally, at the end, after he overcomes the last bad guy, his daughter is standing there. There's tears in her eyes. She's been drugged, and and just all sorts of awful things have happened. And she sees him, and she says, you you came for me. And then she says it again, "You, you came for me. And he embraces her, and he says, I told you that I would. And that's exactly what God has done, isn't it? from way back, thousands of years ago, in the garden. He says, I'm coming for you. I know you've rejected me. I know you despised me. I know that you did what I told you not to do, but I'm coming for you. And that's exactly what he does. And Peter can't help but celebrate that fact. And so as he does, he's going to show us that the living hope that we have is rooted first in a future inheritance. Look at verses four and five. He's reminding his audience that there is an inheritance that is theirs, not because of anything they've done, but because of who Jesus is and what he has done. This inheritance isn't tiny, it's vast, it isn't temporary, it's permanent. It doesn't lose its value, but it keeps it, and it's secure because it's in God's bank, right? It's it's not something that the looters and the rioters are gonna get to. God is preserving it for you and I. And not only does it say that he's preserving this inheritance for us, which is fantastic, it's amazing, it's incredible, but look what it says in verse five. It talks about not only is he guarding the inheritance, He's guarding you and I, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God's not only promised us an inheritance that he is keeping watch over, but he's guarding us as well. There's a future inheritance, but secondly, there's a present joy, verses 6 through 9. Peter reminds his audience that though they're going through hardship, their life is filled with joy. And, it, and, and that joy isn't based on their circumstances except in this way. The trials that they were facing was actually refining their faith and increasing their joy. It was removing the junk in their lives It was removing the things that could have taken their focus off of Jesus Christ. And it was fixing their eyes on him. A faith that would result in the praise and glory and honor when Jesus himself returns. And that faith, it says, not only produced joy, but look what he says. He's like, you haven't seen him yet, but you love him. Their faith produced in them not only a joy, but a love for a savior that they had yet to physically meet. Living hope produces a growing joy and love for Jesus in our lives. And then Peter goes back one further step and he says, this living hope is rooted in a previous revelation that is precious. Notice what he says there. In verses 10 through 12, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And he goes on and he says, these are things into which angels longed to look. So the very people who God used to tell ahead of time that he was sending a rescuer, were like, they're they're hearing this, they're receiving this from him, and they're like, God, when's this coming? They're ecstatic. And he's like, it's not for you guys yet. It's for a future generation. And as this is happening, the angels are watching, and they're like, what is God doing? They're looking, they're trying to understand when this happened to them, When some of the angels disobeyed God, there was no grace established for them. There was only banishment from heaven. And Peter says, you know what? There was a precious truth that was declared long ago that has now come true for you. And it's true for us too. There's a living hope rooted in a future inheritance of present joy and in a previous revelation. Now Peter has set the stage. And now he's going to get into the heart of what we're looking at this morning. He's going to give us these four things, right, that I said earlier. The first one is preparing your minds for action, verses 13 to 16. And we're not looking at every nuance of every verse by any stretch, but he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. Literally, it says, gird up your minds. And then so reference back to the... Exodus story, when Passover is about to be celebrated, and in Exodus 12, 11, God says the instructions he gives, that they were to take the Passover to eat the meal like this. You're to have your belt fastened, your sandals on, and your feet, uh, on your feet, and your staff in your hand. In other words, be ready to go at a moment's notice. This isn't like a big party that you're going to sit around. Be ready, because I'm about to act. Gird up your loins, he says to them, and be ready to go. And Peter takes this imagery now, and he says, don't just gird up your loins, gird up your mind. Be prepared. Be ready. Now, isn't that interesting? Because one of the most common arguments you hear against Christianity is that it's all about faith, meaning something that can't be substantiated, something that's not reasonable, something that's not logical. And Peter says in his very first note here, as he calls them to holy living, he says, gird up your minds. Prepare your minds. Holiness is dependent on us having our minds prepared for it. It's an active command. It's not a passive one. It's not just something where we sit back, okay, God, make me holy. He's calling us to engage in it with him. Of course, there are things that he alone can do. But we don't sit idly by as though, oh, he'll take care of everything. I don't need to do anything. No. Peter says, have your minds prepared. Be ready to go. It's impossible to be holy apart from the work of God in our life. But it's also impossible unless we are engaged in the process as well. And that begins with preparing our mind. Secondly, he says, be sober-minded. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. It literally says, be sober. Be free from every form of excess. Think clearly. Don't be controlled by external circumstances. It's not just the overtly sinful things that come to mind. When we talk about the word sin it's not just things like drunkenness or pornography or greed that can control us but good things those could include family career finances sports there's a whole host of things that could control us and peter says no holiness can only be produced when we're controlled by the holy spirit Do not get drunk with wine, Ephesians says, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Walk in Him. Let Him control your life. That's key to being holy. He continues, and he says, set your hope fully on the grace of Christ that is to come. He says, have an unchangeable hope in Christ. Don't get distracted, don't get bogged down with the things of this world. It's easy to have spiritual ADD, isn't it? To to quickly get off focus, our eyes not on Christ, but on circumstances, good or bad. And Peter says, no, 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 fix your eyes on Jesus. There's so much more going on that seeks and demands our attention whether it's politics, culture, finances, things that can sway us away from following Jesus with all our hearts. And then the fourth one is, he says, do not be conformed to your former passions. Peter takes his audience back to the life before they knew Jesus, and he says, don't go back there. It's like he's putting up a sign, keep out. I have a neighbor a couple um, streets over, and I often am walking by his house, and he's got this huge fence, and all over the fence are these messages basically telling people to keep out. Some of them are like, "If you, th-, you know, don't fear the dog, fear the owner. Or there's one that says, uh, do you believe in an afterlife? Jump the fence and find out. You know, it's things like this. He doesn't want anybody on his property. And Peter is saying the same thing here, listen. There was a life you used to live. You've let that life go. Leave it in the past. Don't return to it. Holiness requires that we move forward. Holiness requires, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12, verses one through two, becoming a living sacrifice. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, what? Holy and acceptable to God. Now, I love this quote by Charles Swindoll about this passage, because I think it sums it up really well. He wrote this, he says, because believers are live rather than dead sacrifices, they have a tendency to want to crawl off of the altar. That's why this deliberate decision To place oneself at God's disposal must be made repeatedly. We want to crawl off the altar, don't we? This is why holiness is more than just what we avoid or the to-do list we have. It's submitting ourselves to Christ. But now look, Peter doesn't stop there. He's going to go on now and he's going to show us some ways in which what holiness produces in our life. Now, we're only gonna look at two from this chapter. What I wanna encourage you to do is, this week, pick up 1 Peter, it's only five short chapters, continue reading and see what this holy life looks like that Peter was calling his audience to. And as you do, take note of these two. First, The first thing it produces is living with a godly fear. This goes back to Pastor Adam's point a couple weeks ago. God is God, I am not. If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, what's the time of your exile? Our entire life on this earth. Conduct yourself in fear. Now, fear is one of those words too, right? That gets thrown around a lot and what does it mean? Fear here is not talking about this dread and foreboding when you think about God. That's not what he's getting at. What he's getting at is a reverence for God that says, you are God and I am not. It's it's saying, I'm not only called to respect God, but I'm called to submit to him. I'm called to say not my will, but yours be done. So holiness will produce in us a godly fear, but it will also do something else. So that's the the vertical. Now he's going to come to the horizontal in the last part of chapter one. And he's going to say, love each other to the fullest, or love each other earnestly. Holiness not only impacts our vertical relationship with Christ, but it impacts our relationship horizontally with each other. Holiness leads us to love each other earnestly. And literally what it would say is, love each other at a full stretch or in an all out manner. The image is of a runner. Coming up to the finish line, and the tape is there, and it's close, it's neck and neck, and they're reaching out, they're giving everything they've got. Or a football player, he's going towards the goal line, and he's only inches away, but there's a tackler, and he's trying to get that ball over the goal line to score the goal. He's reaching out with every fiber of his being with that goal in mind. Holiness will produce that in us. A love like that, that we extend ourselves... For others. You see, what's really going on is holiness is merging our position in Christ, which was secured when we came to faith in him. We call that justification. We're perf- we have a perfect standing before a holy God based on what Jesus Christ did. Holiness is merging that experience with the reality of who we are. It's us becoming more like Jesus. It's God whittling away day by day the things in our life that distract us and keep us from him. And making us more like the son he loves, who he sent on our behalf. It's calling us to turn away from the temporal and to the eternal so that by doing so, the beauty of who Jesus Christ is and the upside-down kingdom that he reigns in may be seen by those around us. So hopefully you've noticed by now that as Peter has gone through this chapter, as he's called them to holiness, each turn, it seems, he comes back to the gospel. And this is where we're gonna end. Hopefully, you've noticed that Peter constantly connects the call to holiness to what Jesus has done for us, because Jesus, in fact, lived a holy life for us. He was a stranger and a sojourner and an exile, too. He left his throne in heaven for a trough and a manger. He laid aside his rights and privileges in order to obey his Father. He suffered so that we might be reconciled to God. And he kept his focus on the Father, even when that meant heading to the cross. He strained giving every last ounce to show his love for us. He doesn't ask us to do anything that he doesn't, hasn't already done and more so. So here's where we're gonna conclude. The call to holiness is a call to say, I belong to you, Lord. You have set me apart. I am wholly yours. Will you join me in heeding that call? Let's pray. Gracious, amazing Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love and faithfulness in our lives, giving us things abundantly and inheritance that we do not deserve, that we do not keep, but that you keep for us. Thank you for sending your son as an exile to the world he created where he was rejected and despised among men, but he did so to shine a light to point us to you. So, God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the living hope that we have, that you would free our hearts from the things that entangle us because of the beauty of Jesus Christ, and that in doing so, you would help us, equip us, strengthen us to lead a holy life that shows others your beauty. I pray in Jesus' name. Now, one last thing real quick for you before the worship team continues. Sorry, guys. Um, this is a copy of a book that I have read several times in my life, *The Pursuit of Holiness*. I have so I have an extra copy, and I would be glad to lend it out to you. If you're interested, please come see me. This is a great, practical, easy read on a really weighty subject that I hope will encourage you in your walk with the Lord.